Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. Over the past two weeks, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia has hosted the 45th session of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee. Due to the COVID pandemic, this is the first time the committee has been able to meet in person since 2019, and the agenda was understandably packed. EIA's elephant campaign was closely following proceedings, and in this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about world heritage in general, and some of the outcomes of this latest meeting. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and to guide us through the deliberations of the committee, I'm joined by Senior Wildlife Campaigner Lindsay Smith. Lindsay, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me today. First off, to give us some context for the Riyadh meeting, would you give us a quick crash course in what World Heritage actually is and what it is the World Heritage Committee actually does? Yeah, sure. I'm sure we've all heard of World Heritage Sites and we've probably visited some of them. Uh, For example, like the Great Pyramids of Giza in Egypt, uh, the Great Wall of China, the Great Barrier Reef and so on. Uh, And so here in the UK, of course, we've got places like Stonehenge, Jurassic Coast and the Tower of London. So the movement to protect cultural heritage sites and nature really started to gain momentum after World War II. And the merging of these concepts and these movements really culminated in 1972 with the development of a new global treaty or convention concerning the protection of world cultural and natural heritage. And that's called the World Heritage Convention. What this convention is trying to achieve is the permanent protection of cultural and natural heritage is really considered to be you know, so important that it's the heritage of humankind for future generations. And that's really what makes World Heritage quite exceptional, um, is this, this concept of universality, that it belongs to all peoples of the world, not just to a country where it belongs. So what that means is that when a site gets listed, um, the country that's put that site forward is accepting an obligation and the responsibility to protect and manage that property for future generations and on behalf of the rest of the world. So it's quite a big deal that you're getting yourself into here. So many countries have signed the treaty, um, but this treaty works a little differently to other global treaties in that it has a decision-making body called the World Heritage Committee. Um, And this committee is not necessarily every single party that's signatory to the convention. It's composed of, I think it's 21 parties that represent different regions of the world. And they serve a term of about four years before a new committee gets voted in. And that committee will meet every year in a meeting that's called a session. And they discuss a wide range of issues like which sites should be nominated and inscribed on the list of World Heritage Sites, uh, which sites should be placed on or removed from the list of World Heritage in Danger, um, and to discuss other states of conservation of other World Heritage Sites. Fantastic. Uh, you mentioned there a list of World Heritage in Danger. Can, can you expand on exactly what that means? Yeah, sure. So often World Heritage Sites will face conservation challenges and issues that are um, either beyond the control of the government that's responsible for managing them or have threats that are such a significant threat to the property and the reason why it's a World Heritage Site that they just need some additional support from the global community. Um, So if we think about things like natural disasters, particularly earthquakes, um, like we've seen, for example, recently in Morocco, a couple of World Heritage Sites were badly affected. Uh, Nepal is another country where they've had devastating impacts that have significantly threatened World Heritage Sites. Armed conflict at the moment is an ongoing major threat to many sites. And actually, at the last committee meeting, we had two new sites in Ukraine that were placed on the list of the World Heritage in Danger 
because of the risk of uh, shelling from the war um, between Russia and Ukraine. So the World Heritage List in danger is not meant to be seen as a negative consequence. It's actually meant to be a proactive and positive tool um, to make sure that these sites are given priority and get the necessary resources and expertise. So it's more like um, sounding an early alarm, yeah? Absolutely. But having said that, sometimes sites do get placed on the list due to failures of the party responsible for managing the sites where they're not doing their job. So in, in some cases, uh, apart from all these natural disasters and, and conflict, um, there are occasions where the, the country is simply taking its eye off the ball and is allowing practices to carry on, which themselves put the sites in jeopardy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Now, AI's elephant campaign um, mostly focuses on the threats of the illegal ivory trade um, to the future of the species. Um, I guess people are going to be asking, why, why is it that we're also engaging in World Heritage Matters? How does that affect um, our, our work with elephants? Yeah, absolutely. Key points. Um, so there is one site on the list of World Heritage in Danger that EIA has been closely following for many years, and that's that's the Salu Game Reserve World Heritage Site in Tanzania. Um, so people may recall that there was catastrophic elephant poaching for the illegal ivory trade that occurred in Salu from 2009 to 2014. Um, and EIA has done a, a tremendous amount of work on exposing the poaching crisis in Tanzania. Um, and obviously that that poaching crisis was about feeding a resurgence in ivory trade in China before China's ban came into effect. So in 2014, our, our report, um, I think it's Vanishing Point, indicated you know, this ongoing poaching crisis, and it was really instrumental in getting the Tanzanian government to respond to that poaching crisis. Um, and similarly, we played a, a very strong role in exposing the transnational organized illegal ivory trade network that was ultimately behind much of that illegal ivory coming out from Tanzania and Mozambique. Uh, and that, of course, was our 2017 report on the Shridong connection. So this poaching issue in the Sulu was considered to be such a, a threat to the World Heritage status by the World Heritage Committee that it was a reason for, this, for the Sulu to be placed on the World Heritage List back in 2014. So you can understand why, in that sense, it wasn't necessarily due to a failure by the government. It was just such a threat to the site that needed addressing. However, since then, the new threat that has emerged to the World Heritage property is the ongoing construction by the government of Tanzania of a hydropower dam and plant in a region called Stiegler's Gorge along the Rafiji River, which runs all the way through the Salu um, and which actually ultimately terminates in a, a very important river delta complex, which is also a Ramsar wetland of global significance. Um, and so this, this dam and hydropower plant, it's been a vanity project from day one, but unfortunately it has incredibly significant impacts both on the salute property itself as well as downstream. So the dam uh, has flooded approximately a thousand square kilometers of the Salu World Heritage Site. Um, there's been extensive clearance of uh, critical woodlands and cr uh, critical habitat as well as developing huge numbers of roads and other infrastructure right in the heart of the Salu. And what this means is that key habitat for critically endangered species like black rhino, elephants, wild dog, lion, and cheetah, has now been permanently lost. And of course, the Refugee River itself has been largely dammed off, which means the annual flooding that's necessary to maintain the downstream ecosystems, including a, a very important mangrove uh, swamp at the, at the end of the delta, has now been 
uh, permanently impacted. Uh, and there are countless communities downstream who rely on the refugee for their livelihoods. So in previous years, um, the World Heritage Committee has made it quite clear that it considers hydropowers not to be compatible with World Heritage status. So it's urged Tanzania not to proceed with the dam, but they have done so in any event. And there have been other, other issues with this entire process about the construction. Um, for example, the IUCN conducted independent reviews of both the environmental impact assessments and the strategic environmental assessments that were done for the project. Um, and I might add, both of those processes were done after construction commenced, which is very problematic. And the IUCN found that both fell very far short of sort of accepted international standards and basically not fit for purpose. So then from EIA's side, we've been following the money behind the construction. Um, so we've identified who the investors and lenders in the project are, and we've been engaging with them to divest from the project, you know, again, highlighting the significant damage of this, this activity, and ultimately trying to get lenders and investors to recognize that World Heritage Sites should be treated as what's called no-go. And that's a global good practice. Uh, and we highlighted our work extensively in terms in our 2021 report, World Heritage Damned. And so then in 2021, the SALU was up for discussion by the World Heritage Committee. Um, and what we saw in 2021 was really quite significant. Um, the World Heritage uh, Committee, which is, uh, sorry, the World Heritage Center, who is a secretariat for the convention, and one of the advisory bodies, which is IUCN, recommended that the site be deleted from the list of World Heritage um, because it said the construction of the dam was considered to have caused such irreversible damage that it basically no longer met the qualifications of being World Heritage Site. Um, and again, highlighted that Tanzania as a party hadn't complied with its obligations. And so we saw in 2021 that there was significant discussion and lobbying around this particular issue um, because it potentially Tanzania would have been, or Salu would have been only the third site ever to be delisted from the World Heritage List. So it's quite a big deal. But that ultimately didn't happen. Um, and so the decision that was made back in 2021 was that the site has been retained on the, world, on the list of World Heritage in danger. And so that's where we were when we went into this next meeting in 2023. And, and what actually happened at the meeting this year, um, apart from the general headline outcomes um, uh, as, as concerned nature, um, what in terms of the salute? Was it up for discussion again? Was the same discussion going, going around the rounds? Uh, no. So as I said, despite being a major topic of discussion at the last meeting, it didn't even come up for discussion this year. Um, and there's actually quite a good reason behind that. It's not necessarily nefarious. The decision from 2021 indicated that the site will probably come up for discussion at the next year's meeting, the 46th session. Um, and there's a reason why they don't discuss sites every single year. It's just because there are so many properties that they can't discuss every single site. So not every site gets discussed each year. And so often what happens then is that the draft decision that gets prepared for the committee to approve just gets approved without discussion. And that's what happened this year. So the sites, the agreement is, or the decision is that the site will remain on the list in danger, but the decision also made it quite clear that it considers the impact of the dam and the hydropower plant um, as irreversible. So I wouldn't be surprised if next year we see the recommendation put forward that the site is again proposed for deletion. Um, and 
it's other reasons why that would probably happen is because the committee has over the last four or five years been requesting the government of Tanzania to invite what's called a, a monitoring mission to come in to see the extent of the impacts. But Tanzania has been stalling and hasn't yet issued that invitation. A, a monitoring mission, that, uh, in layperson's lay, lay terms, that's basically like a site visit where people go along to observe firsthand what's happening, yeah? Yeah, pretty much. It's, so it'll be a, a mission comprised of experts who will obviously then go to look see what the particular issues are and have discussions with the party about how they can better address the challenges that they're seeing on the ground. And those, um, the decisions and the outcomes of the monitoring mission then get put forward to the committee so they are able to discuss the findings. So it's actually a really important process that needs to happen. And, and, and what actually are the implications of um, a site being deleted from the World Heritage List? I mean, if, if this were to go ahead next year, what would be the likely repercussions for Tanzania? If, if any. Yeah, so deletion has, they both, it depends on the situation and the reasons why a site gets deleted. Um, obviously, the, the big risk with sites being deleted is that there's no longer that commitment or, or that obligation that needs to be maintained by a state party. So you might find that they're not as willing to commit as much resources and effort towards protecting something. Um, you know, World Heritage Sites for so many countries are really critical tourism um, sites. They provide significant economic and social benefits to, to local communities and the like. So there are potential negative impacts in that sense that if a site gets delisted, those social uh, and so social economic impacts and tourism impacts are potentially lost. But the bigger threat is that it's the commitment from the state party that gets lost. And so you find these sites that actually are still really, really significant are not getting as protected uh, as they should do. In the case of Tanzania, um, there has been significant interest from the state party to do additional infrastructure in and around the park. There are other proposals around other dams and the like. And so it's unclear as to whether they would consider then the salus being open for development. Um, but potentially that could be the case. And that's what we would obviously like to avoid. Yeah, that would obviously be very unfortunate if in, in, in deleting the site from the list, that basically declares like a, an open season Wild West kind of environment for it. Well, potentially. Um, they, that's why domestic legislation is so important that protected areas are also still recognized at a domestic or a national level as being no-go. Um, and, and so that, that, I think, is also one of the reasons why the World Heritage Committee has been quite keen for the state party to consider looking at maybe doing another um, World Heritage nomination for other parts of the Salu, trying to exclude the damage to try and avoid that exact situation where it does get treated as being potentially an open field day for development. Well, you, you've clearly been following events, uh, the CELU, for some time now. Um, in your opinion, what's the long-term future of, of the site looking like? That's really hard to say at the moment. Um, but to be fair, it doesn't necessarily look positive because particularly with this dam, it's a permanent uh, structure and feature and the impacts are going to be long lasting. What we do know is that with the site being retained on the list of World Heritage in Danger, the government of Tanzania should now be uh, formulating a plan that's called a desired state of conservation. Um, and that's for the removal of the site from the list of World Heritage in Danger. And basically, this is a very detailed plan that's been developed and costed that will show 
how the how the government essentially is planning on minimizing and mitigating the damage that's already been caused um, and how it's essentially going to ensure that the site will continue to meet the conditions of what's called outstanding universal value um, and so it can still be a world heritage site. Now, with, with the dam being so far advanced, um, this desired state of conservation report will have to factor in both the long-term impacts in the upstream and the downstream of the site, uh, because it's not just the World Heritage Site that gets impacted by this dam. So it's a really big piece of work. Um, and that monitoring mission is so important to try feed into that process. Um, but again, there's no indication of, of when or if that's even going to happen. So from our side, we will keep monitoring to see where the government of Tanzania is in this um, this process about developing this desired state of conservation, and we'll keep putting pressure on Tanzania to get that that uh, process going and support the the World Heritage Centre and the advisory bodies in, in that piece of work too. That's probably probably a very obvious question. Uh, well, to you certainly, obviously working at Ground Zero, but why, why do you think World Heritage sites in general should be off limits to development? Yeah, it's an absolutely fair point, and it's certainly something that comes up for discussion almost every single year at the World Heritage Committee. Um, so not all types of developments are necessarily harmful, um, but there is certainly a recognition that there are some types that can have extremely negative impacts, which should be avoided. And that's particularly in the sense if you recognize the aspirations of the World Heritage Convention, which is about protecting sites for future generations. Um, so particularly natural sites, um, activities like extractive industries, mining, for example, oil and gas exploration, uh, or very large scale developments like dams and transport infrastructure can have really significant uh, lasting impacts. And for so many natural world heritage sites, they are the last remaining strongholds for endangered species and ecosystems. Um, and so in our current context of a global biodiversity loss, you know, this ongoing crisis, it's so important that we safeguard these, these areas. But on the other hand, we also know that for many natural heritage sites, they have significant natural resources that can be exploited for socioeconomic gain. Um, and so it is often a challenge of balancing international commitments with domestic needs for growth. Um, and that's similar to what I was mentioning earlier about national legislation needs to reflect those ambitions and should really be recognizing protected areas and other sites of significant biodiversity value as being off limits for these kinds of activities. And it's just it's quite unfortunate that, you know, Africa in particular faces significant developmental challenges um, and with so many significant natural world heritage sites, they're often in the firing line. Um, and so that is also why holding governments to account in terms of the world heritage com commitments is so important. Um, and just to be clear, that includes making sure that governments don't negatively impact another country's world heritage, which is actually an obligation under the convention. Um, and you might wonder why I'm, I'm raising that, but it's an actual, it's a real issue. Uh, so for example, we've got Egypt, who's been playing a very key role in the construction of the hydropower plant in Tanzania. Um, and another example is Namibia, um, who has issued prospecting licenses for oil and gas. Uh, and that's in the, the river basin that includes the Okavango Delta World Heritage Site in Botswana. So keeping them to account is really important. But similarly, holding financial and investment sectors to account is becoming increasingly important work for EIA. Um, you know, from the, the World Heritage Committee perspective, World Heritage Sites should be treated as no-go for these types of large-scale 
infrastructure developments. And they've had a long-running program um, called the No-Go Commitment, which essentially targets corporates and financial uh, sectors uh, to essentially recognize the no-go commitments and to include World Heritage Sites in the, their list of excluded sites. Uh, as we know, the corporates and financials, uh, the financial institutions are becoming increasingly aware of their impact in both the biodiversity and climate crises. And so there's certainly a lot of work that still needs to be done, but there is growing recognition of their role. Uh, and so continuing to raise awareness about the no-go commitments about raising the awareness of World Heritage Sites can only be to the benefits of all future generations. If, if we can move um, away from the state of the salute for a moment, um, what other significant news was there for the World Heritage Committee meeting this year? Obviously, you spent two weeks monitoring it and, and um, yeah, seeing what was coming up. Was there anything you were particularly hoping to hear? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, I'll start with sort of some of the top line um, top line uh, outcomes. Uh, there were 42 sites that were new sites that were inscribed at this committee, which is uh, a lot. <laughs> um, but the really good news is that um, for Africa, there were five new sites that were inscribed. Um, and that makes now there are 100 um, African or 100 uh, World Heritage Sites from Africa on the list, which is great. Um, you know, priority Africa. Oh, sorry, Africa has been a priority for quite some time for the World Heritage Committee, and they've really been um, pushing forward on promoting African World Heritage, and that has included at this committee session um, approving a strategic plan um, around Priority Africa, as they call it. Um, some really good news was the declaration of a new World Heritage site in Congo, um, and this was their second site in total. Uh, the site, which is called, and I, I might get it wrong. The forest massif of Odzala Kakua, uh, which is a crucial stronghold for the critically endangered African forest elephant, uh, along, I understand, with numerous primates, um, particularly the Western lowland gorilla. So that's really good news for African world heritage. Um, and there was also one other African site that was actually removed from the list of world heritage in danger, uh, and that was a cultural heritage site in Uganda that has, uh, I think it was on three occasions, has Burnt, burnt down and has been restored. So they've done a huge amount of work to get the site off the list in danger. So it just goes to show the level of commitments from Uganda towards their world heritage, which is great to see. Um, in terms of other sites that EIA has kind of been following at this committee session, um, I briefly mentioned the Okavanga Delta. So the Okavanga Delta has been, there's been much, much comment about the ongoing oil and gas exploration by Recon Africa in Namibia, which can significantly potentially threaten the Okavango Delta World Heritage Site. And there has been some talk about extending the World Heritage inscription to include some areas in Namibia and Angola. And that would make, make it even more important to make sure that oil and gas exploration is prevented. So the site was briefly discussed at the committee meeting, but what we were hoping for was that the three parties would commit to a permanent moratorium on oil and gas exploration. It didn't quite occur. Uh, so we'll have to keep monitoring the situation and keep pushing for that, um, along with, you know, there are many, many other um, CSOs engaged on this matter because it's, it's really recognized that uh, oil and gas exploration poses a very significant threat to what is really one of Africa's largest remaining wildernesses. Um, and the other site of concern that we've been following is the Mana Pools uh, World Heritage Site in Zimbabwe, which, like the Okavango and the Sulu, is a critical elephant stronghold. It's, so just across um, from Mana Pools, across, 
across the Zambezi River in the lower Zambezi National Park is a copper mine called the Kangalui Copper Mine. Um, and just to note, it is within the lower Zambezi National Park because in Zambian uh, legislation, mining in protected areas is permitted, which obviously is something of a concern. Um, but the concern with this particular mine is that it poses potentially significant threats to mana pools, which is very close by. Um, unfortunately, the site didn't come up for discussion this year, um, although from what we do understand, it is up for discussion next year. We do currently know that a compliance notice has been issued, which has stopped the mining activities, but the mining, the mining license itself is currently still in effect. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on the ground with uh, local coalitions of partners to bring the, the mining to a permanent halt. Excellent. Well, I guess finally, on balance, um, to, to wrap things up a bit, do you think World Heritage Sites are an effective conservation tool? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to take a, a more positive view. Um, there is certainly some recognized and probably uh, correct uh, views about how, how World Heritage is failing and some of the, the challenges that the system has. And there are absolutely some areas for improvements. Um, the key thing is that, you know, it depends on the level of commitment from governments uh, and the amount of resources that they're willing to protect. But it can be done. And there are so many countries and governments that do recognize the significant value of World Heritage Sites, and they do contribute and commit significant resources to them. So from EIA's perspectives, you know, the, the aspirations of the World Heritage Convention are absolutely key. We need to keep reminding parties to the convention and holding them to account that this is not our heritage alone that we need to better protect. You know, we are really just the custodians of the inheritance for future generations, and we need to ensure that that inheritance is properly conserved and managed. Yeah, well, the, the, I think the future will be judging us very dimly if we take these unique habitats and environments and we turn them upside down in pursuit of oil, which the world technically shouldn't even be using anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So, so they, they absolutely can be very, very good tools for protection, uh, particularly, as we said, in the ongoing climate crises. But it comes down to the level of commitment from, from governments. Uh, but that's where EIA comes in. And that's what you know, we do best about holding governments to account. Well, Lindsay, thank you very much for joining us and for giving us such a, um, a fulsome account of the occurrences of the World Heritage Committee. Um, and we look forward to having you back next year to talk about what's happened then. Thank you so much, Paul. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and do check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there.